Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Anywhere you go today, there seems like there's a, a book or a magazine article or a blog post on, you know, 10 ways to be happy, the benefits of happiness, why you need to be mindful, why you shouldn't get angry, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's basically an article of faith in 21st century America that you need to be happy all the time or something's wrong with you. Well, our guest today uh, wrote a book along with a few other guys who say that's not necessarily true, that there are there could be some downsides to positivity all the time, and there's downsides to not getting angry. His name is Todd Cashton. He is the author of the book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self and Not Just Your Good Self Drives Success and Fulfillment. In the book, him and his co-authors highlight psychological research that shows the benefits of getting depressed, the benefits of getting angry, and the downsides of seeing things with rose-colored glasses all the time and being positive and upbeat all the time. Anyways, a fascinating discussion it dovetails nicely with the series we've been doing on depression on the site these past few weeks. A lot of great insights and research that we highlight. We also talk about Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt comes up and Todd calls something that Teddy had the Teddy effect. And it's a psychological traits that we often associate with bad guys, but Teddy had them in spades, but he's able to use those to do a lot of good. Anyways, fascinating discussion. So let's do this. Todd Cashton, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, so your book is The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self and Not Just Your Good Self Drives Success and Fulfillment. So the reason I I, I love this book and it stuck out to me is that it's a contrarian book. Because like right now, it seems like we're having this sort of positivity renaissance, or I don't know. Uh, there's all these books and magazine articles and blog articles about the happiness project or like being mindful and being calm. Um, so my question is in this sort of this positivity culture we live in, what made you research the downside of happiness and the upside of, you know, anger and depression? Sure. Well, my co-author and I are both researchers in the field of well-being. So we've written books and we've written We've conducted the research on the benefits of happiness, positive social interactions for a decade. And we've read the books you mentioned, and we despise, and particularly this is an American cultural phenomenon, this obsession with happiness. And what we've noticed is it doesn't resonate with how we interacted with the real world 
and we went to corporations with parenting our kids, with dealing with our romantic partners, with friends that are annoying and friends that we love, and those often oscillate between we often dislike and like our friends depending on the day of the week. And there are lots of obnoxious, annoying people at work on the road with you, on the highway, that you see in stores that are in line with you, that yell at the stewardesses or bartenders that you happen to be a fan of. And we realized that these books on positivity, while they're they're uplifting and they're enjoyable and they're hopeful, they're not realistic in terms of what we face in, in terms of challenges on a daily basis. So we want to create a book that wasn't about that happiness is bad because nobody should listen to us if you say that. It's not about that being kind is a bad thing. It's just that we need to be more agile, which is there's a time and place to be friendly and kind. And that should be our default when we first meet a stranger. But as you know, this is, this is the show of the art of manliness where there's a time and place after a certain number of attempts to being kind where you have to switch gears into your psychological toolkit and show some dominance and aggression to, to get the best possible outcome in a situation. Nobody wants an argument. Nobody wants a fight. But if somebody messes with your romantic partner or somebody messes with your kids in a very inappropriate way, you better have more tools in your toolkit or you're going to have difficulty getting through life. Yeah, being nice isn't going to solve the problem. Oftentimes. It's a good first start. It's a sure. good first start. You know, we, we talk about in the book is and a mantra we live by, which is attempt two shots at kindness, like real wholehearted attempts. And after that, you get to be more flexible in how you respond to somebody and you get to and you get to remind them, listen, I tried two times to be friendly with you. Right now your attitude is absolutely inappropriate. Um, we've got some talking to do. And you shift gears. Gotcha. So I, uh, yeah, I love that idea of emotional and mental agility. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Um, so I know you said you don't want to emphasize that you're you're saying that happiness is bad, but you did say that this it this tendency in our in our American culture to emphasize happiness and positivity does have some downsides. You know, for example, you know, everyone wants to be happy, right? It's like in the Declaration of Independence, you know, we want we our goal as Americans is to pursue happiness. But you uh, highlight some research that says that we're not actually very good at obtaining happiness, even though we want it so bad. Why are we so bad at being happy? You did a really good job reading this book. Yeah, it's so we all want, I mean, we all want our kids to be happy and we all want to be happy. The, there's a sort of paradox here, which is when you, tr when you try to emphasize happiness as the fundamental objective of your life, if I ask you, you know, why are you trying to make so much money? Why do you want to, um, to, to enter into a long-term relationship with this guy or gal? And, um, you know, why do you want to move to this place? You'll probably say happiness. But if you're, every decision, the determinant is, will it make me happier? That's a very problematic way to live. You will never go to graduate school. You will never work up, work up the effort and um, the, the sweat equity in a workplace to move up the ladder. You're not going to get an increase in pay unless by some random way that all of a sudden everybody's going to get um, you know, a 3% or 4% bump in salary. You're not going to have a healthy long-term relationship because you need to argue but learn how to argue well. You're definitely not going to be able to take care of kids because kids are the ultimate hostage negotiators because they never stop fighting and coming back at you. You need to deviate from positivity. You need to be able to delay gratification. You're going to 
in a typical day see people that are more physically attractive than your romantic partner and more interesting than your friends, and you have to res- sometimes resist these temptations, is, is really what you're committing to you when you're saying you're in a monogamous relationship. It's not that you're going to ha- not have temptations. Can you resist them? Can you delay gratification? Can you, can you do something that's hard in the gym for the next three months because you want your body to be in a particular place so you can do a triathlon or do the Spartan race? You don't enjoy going to the gym at 5.30 in the morning. You do it because you're on a mission. And so this is all deviations from positivity. And when we speak about positivity is the be-all and end-all, we miss maturity, wisdom, personal growth, healthy relationships, and most of the things that people want in life. Gotcha. I loved how you talked about uh, the time traveler problem, where we think we, we, think we know it's going to make us happy. But then when we get there, it doesn't make us as happy as we think. Because this is a problem with like goals for me, right? Like I'll set a goal for myself. And I think once I obtain that, like I'll be happy. But then when you achieve it, you're sort of like, meh. I mean, what, what's going on? Is what's, it because like, I'm, a, am I, I'm a different person or what's going on there? Yeah, I remember um, reading about um, this guy, Roberts. I forgot his first name. I think it was... Nah, I forgot his first name. So Roberts had, at some point, that was the strongest man in the world. And when you combine deadlift, bench press, and squat, he had over 3,800 pounds. Just for everyone listening, just put that into your head in terms of his bench press was, I think, 920 pounds. Jeez. So this guy, this guy spent 10 years of his life. He, he was in the U.K. He was too short to make the, um, the national basketball team. And then he was deciding, well, what do I want to do? I always wanted to be a professional basketball player. And then someone, he was in the gym working out, and someone said, you know what? You have really amazing form. You're responding very quickly. So he's like, can I take you under his wing? And he said, he said, I'll take you under my wing, this, this athletics coach, this strength trainer. And he said, if you can tell me what your goal is. And he said his goal was to be the strongest man in the world. He spent 10 years with that one objective. And again, this is not a happy journey. There's, there's moments of excitement and joy, but as anyone who's really intensely working on running or strength training or agility training or even just increasing the amount of books they read, there's a lot of non-joy, but a lot of meaning that comes there. At the end of 10 years, when he broke the record to be the strongest man alive, the next day, he was in a depressive spiral. Because at that point, what do you exactly, what do you do next when you meet that goal? And he got himself together in one week and said, you know what? I'm going to teach these skills that I used of that discipline and bring it into the educational system in the workplace. And that's what he's been doing. So he had to completely turn his life around. Now, for a lot of people, you, th- you know, you think of astronauts that have been on the moon. Every one of them had a mental, had a mental breakdown when they came back because what do you do after you've been on You've actually physically stood on another planet, and then all of a sudden you're taking out the garbage on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a big letdown for sure. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting too. You know, a lot of the this, the um, positive psychology research emphasizes all these benefits of of being happy, right? Um, better health. Uh, you recognize opportunities more often than maybe people with a depressive outlook on life. But then you highlight research uh, in the book saying there are some downsides to happiness or positivity. Um, What are some of those 
downsides that can kind of get us get in the way of living a meaningful and productive life. Sure. And, and I really want everyone to kind of really think about this. So when they're in a really happy mood, you are much poorer at detecting cheaters. You're much more susceptible to deception, right? So if you, if you end up going to Las Ramblas in Barcelona and you're in an extremely happy mood and you're partying and you're drinking and um, you don't notice the tricks of the trade of some of these deceitful characters in the street where one person distracts you with an attractive guy or woman and then someone else is picking your wallet out of your back pocket while this conversation is happening. When you have a little bit of anxiety or a little bit of discount, I'm not talking about despair or fear, when you're a little bit skeptical at the same time enjoying yourself, well, you have your, you have your self-protective self that's still available there. Um, we tend to be more self-focused and more selfish when we're in a happy mood. And this has been shown in, in tons of research studies in Australia. When you're given an opportunity to split a windfall of money or resources that comes your way with other people, and they can't see what you're doing, you're much more likely to take a bigger piece of the pie for yourself than when you're in a sad mood or a guilty mood or a little bit of an irritable mood. Um, you're less likely to remember details of emotionally provocative situations. So think about being an, an offender vendor, thinking about um, um, having a disagreement with, uh, with someone, with a professor or, um, or with your romantic partner about you know, whether you're, do, you're holding your share of the chores at home. When you're in a good mood, you're less likely to remember the details, which makes it problematic because often those conversations don't go well. And the second conversation afterwards, the next day, when you're making your mea culpas, um, the more that you remember about the interaction, the more you can build off of it and have a constructive conversation about why you're not contributing to the chores or why you should be contributing more to the chores and apologizing for not doing so, of hearing their side of the story for doing these things. And when you're in a positive mood, you're more distractible. Uh, and basically, there's a reason for this, which is when we feel good, we love the status quo. We don't want to change things. We don't want to exert ourselves 100% in the gym or in a joyous mood. We don't want to run um, an interval training where we're running at full speed for a minute and a half and then slowing down for a minute and a half and then going back to full speed. We want to just go for a jog. We want to just have a nice conversation. We're not looking to shake the boat. And when there's a little bit of a distress and a little bit of skepticism in our system, we're much more open to listening to other people, thinking of what can I do to tweak myself, other people, and the environment to improve things for myself. And so when you hear this, it's not that positive moods are better than negative moods. It depends what, what's your challenge that you're facing. If the goal is to live in the moment right now, go for a positive mood. If the goal is to pay attention to explicit details and remember things, being a little bit more downtrodden or anxious is actually better for you. All right. Again, it's going back to that uh, emotional agility, kind of. Yeah, aware. exactly. Okay. And, and so here's an, another section in your book that really resonated with me, and I think will resonate with Art of Manliness readers and listeners. Um, it's this idea that uh, the pursuit of comfort and luxury uh, paradoxically makes us could make us more mentally and emotionally miserable. What's the research on that? We're saying you know comfort can make us miserable. It can and also make our kids miserable. Yeah, the best research is with parenting. And there's a term that 
Catherine Warner came up with, which I love, which is called emotional safeguarding, which is about parents that just want their kids to be happy. And I'm no different. I've got three daughters and I want my kids to be happy. But there's a very interesting thing that happens with particularly middle-class parents, which is they want their kids to be intellectually challenged in the classroom. They want them to take in all of the advanced courses. They don't want them to miss out on anything. They want them to be on um, the Khan Academy, the website. They want to hire tutors, and they want the, the best teachers that will, that will really push them to the limits. And yet, when it comes to their social life or their emotional life, we really try to safeguard them. We try, we plan play dates so they're with the right people that we've already pre-selected in advance. They're with the, they have the good parents, they've got good stock, they're good kids. Um, they think like our family does. They have the same political orientation. They have the same religious views we do. And it's a very weird thing. It's like there's this blind spot where the typical American parent recognizes they need to be intellectually challenged in the class, but socially, I want to put all, it's like, you know, when you have your, your five-year-old bowling and all of a sudden you have those those bumpers that appear so that they can't actually have a um, – I forgot the term. Gutter the ball. Ball, the gutter ball. Yeah, they can't have a gutter ball, right? We set up these guardrails so that they, they will only socialize with really good kids. And here's the problem. Once you leave the nest when you're 12 years old or 13 years old even – and you start hanging out with kids from other schools or you start meeting kids just at the mall or, you know, wherever kids hang out on the streets. You don't, they don't, they're not choosing who they're hanging out with. They're hanging out with lots of different characters. They need to be able to, how can I read people to know whether I can trust them or mistrust them? You know, I always think about, I've, I've been thinking about writing a parenting book. And the whole premise of it would be this very simple idea, because I'm from New York City, which is if I was to take your kid and drop them off blindfolded in Grand Central Station with two dollars. Could they make their Could they make their way back to your house? Would they have the practical intelligence skills, the ability to tolerate distress, the ability to read and understand people? They can leverage them to get their way home. And that's kind of how I, I train my kids. And that's kind of how I think about that when we train our kids to be comfortable, they don't develop the practical intelligence because they don't have any hoops or challenges that they go through. And we did it when we were younger. Our parents did it even more than we did. Our grandparents from the Great Depression era were amazing at this. And so we're not, I mean, we, of course we all want the creature comforts. I love having a king-size bed. I love having a body-conforming pillow. I love central air. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. What I'm saying is if you don't challenge yourselves regularly, you become psychologically weaker. Yeah, there was a, a great quote from King Cyrus, the Persian king. He said, like, soft lands make soft people or something like that. Um, but yeah, yeah. And I, I love that idea of helping your kids develop practical intelligence. It sounds very much, that whole Grand Station thing sounds very much like that free, lane, free range parenting lady where yeah, I think she just recently got in trouble. Like the family services like investigated her because people reported that she was right. abusing her kids, which is weird. Kids are fine. Right right near me, 30 miles away from my house, because her kids were in a playground, seven and nine-year-old by themselves in a playground, and people freaked out and called 911. Yeah, it's not, it's, that's crazy. It's crazy. Well, that's, kids are supposed to be on a playground. Um, yeah. Okay, so we've, we've talked about some of the downsides of happiness. Well, here's another thing, and it kind of 
bugs me a lot because everyone's always talking about mindfulness, right? There's blogs about mindfulness. There's books about mindfulness. And don't get me wrong. Like I'm a big, big believer in you know meditation and mindfulness meditation. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's just sort of irritating when you just see it all the time. It's this sort of end all be all. And once you become mindful, then your life will become wonderful. But you make the case that there's actually a benefit to mindlessness. Uh, what are some of those benefits? Yeah, and this is exactly why you, your disdain is why we call our chapter the tyranny of mindfulness. It, it is it's it is tyrannical. Yeah. And my wife's yoga instructor, so I've been experiencing this for 15 years now, the tyranny <laughs> of mindfulness in my house. I mean, just just think, let me just give the example of, of, a, of an outfielder on a baseball team. And think about them trying to catch a fly ball. Think about how far they are from the batter's box and, and think of all of the variables if they were to be mindful to pay attention to in terms of where do I need to be? How fast do I have to move? I have to pay attention to wind pressure, barometric pressure, the stance of the batter, the speed of the ball, um, their torque motion, how quickly they turn their hips when they actually hit the ball, the angle that the ball hits the, hits the bat, um, where the sun is, we can't mindfully attend to all of this information. One of the things that separates human beings from other, from other creatures and other animals is not that we can become mindful and reach this higher state of consciousness. It's that so many things that we do is amazingly happens at an unconscious gut level. And so how does, a, how does an outfielder on a baseball or softball team catch a ball? Extremely simple. One simple shortcut which is I keep, when I run, my eye contact with the ball, the angle stays the same the entire time that I run. And if I keep the angle the same, I will get to that ball. Sometimes I have to run faster. Sometimes I have to actually back up and, and back up for a little bit. And we don't even constantly think about that. That gaze shortcut, gaze to the ball, is all you pay attention to. And if, we, if, if you had a baseball player listen to this, and pay attention to all of those variables to calculate where they should be, they will be completely paralyzed and will never catch a fly ball again. And yeah. it's when, when people choke, when people choke, I don't know if you remember like Mackie Sasser from the, the Mets in, in the, the late eighties. Oh yeah. Where, where, you know, here's, here was a guy who was, you know, hitting a nice 280, 290 batting average and he couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher after a strike or a ball. Right? I mean, you're talking 90 feet. He just developed stage fright. And all these psychologists were working with him, which was, listen, be mindful about you know, the ball in your hands and, the, and what it feels like to, to be in a crouching, a crouching stance as a catcher and standing back up again when you throw the ball. And all that did was screw him up further. And finally, someone trains him, is you have to get back into the robotic, automatic movements that you've been doing since you were nine years old. And only by getting becoming mindless about it was he able to throw the ball back to the pitcher, not by being mindful. Yeah, didn't uh, in the movie Major League Two they kind of spoofed that? I don't know if you remember that. They're like, like the same oh thing. no, I have to see it. Yeah, like the catcher, like he he all of a sudden couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher. You know, instead of throwing it back, he'd run to the pitcher and put it in his glove. <laughs> but the way he overcame it was the uh, the coach had him recite. Um, because he, he read Playboy and he read like the descriptions of the models, like what, 
what Sheila likes and she a Capricorn. And he would just recite that when he's throwing the ball back to the pitcher. And that's how he got over his, uh, his choking, throwing back to the pitcher. Yeah. You should check that out. It's, oh, really, it's hilarious. No, that's, that's so awesome because that's exactly what I'm talking about. So by distracting himself, he's going into, so we have two modes of thinking, right? There's an automatic reflexive mode. So if he's thinking about, Playboy centerfolds and all of their interests. He's not thinking about the ball, the sweat that's dripping down his face, or the or a stand of thirty thousand people. He's doing it mindfully, reflexively, and automatically. Mindful is we become, become very reflective and become very thoughtful about what we're doing. And there's a time to, it's, you know, there's uh, you hear people talk all the time about their gut instincts. About you know, I don't want to do, I don't want to do a to sign to sign with this guy in terms of buying a house. I don't want to buy a car from this guy. I have this gut instinct that this guy does not have my best interest at heart. Those gut instincts, underneath them, is all of the years you've been collecting information about people. Millions of years of evolution have developed such that we have these quick signals of whether to trust someone or mistrust someone. You know, we get the chills sometimes or with somebody in the elevator or we have the goosebumps when we just are walking next to somebody and we look and we realize there's some sort of chemistry there. There's some fear gnome that's happening between the two of us. Now, I'm not saying always believe your gut instincts, but what I would say is what we're doing now is we're discounting that your gut instincts is really your intelligence on speed and that we should first pay attention to that before we think about, I want to try to be mindful in every moment of our lives. Gotcha. And I thought it was interesting. You talked about how uh, presidents doodle, like most of the presidents doodle during meetings. And that's sort of a mindless activity that actually helped them pay attention more. Yeah, there's, there's a big thing that we know about creativity, which is, and almost every business organization gets this wrong. You know, what normally happens is you grab 15 people, you bring them into the large oval table, and you have this brainstorming session. So extemporaneously, you're sharing all these ideas together. Well, that's actually not how creativity works effectively. People need to hear what the problem is, give them a couple of constraints about what they can or can't do based on whoever the consumer is or whoever's pulling the purse strings, right? So we need to have a two pages. It has to have a story. Um, it's got to involve, um, it's got to be for, we're looking for 20 to 35 year old women who will stay at home. That's our, that's our target audience. But those constraints, have them think about some ideas, but then have give them some time to do something totally distracting that has nothing to do with the project, whether it's going for a bike ride, going for a nap, going in the shower, having sex, whatever it is, um, and then come back to it. And when you're in that incubation period of doing something else, your brain is actively mixing ideas together. It's like a smoothie. It's blending ideas that are no longer being edited by you. And that's where... That's part of the magical process of creativity, that incubation period of doing something else other than the activity you're trying to be creative in. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. 
and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it, and then you forget about it. And then every month, you're getting charged and charged and charged, and they just all add up, and you have a hard time trying to figure out, where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast-growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factory Meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to, to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factory Meals, head to factorymeals.com slash manliness50 and use code MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. That's code MANLINESS50 at factormeals.com slash MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. Check it out today, and make sure to check out the Creamy Pesto Pork Chop. It's really good. 
Gotcha. So uh, I think you've, you've touched on it a little bit uh, in your discussion about the downsides of positivity and happiness. Um, but explicitly, what are some of the upsides of like depression, right? Like right now, you know, we're doing a series about depression on our, our site. And I feel like in America, particularly because we have this emphasis on happiness, that if you're sad or you're feeling down, um, you're broken, right? You're, you need to get that fixed. Um, but you highlight research that there's actually some possible benefits to being in a low, low mood for, an, for a period of time. Yeah, no question. So one is it's very difficult because the nor- the appropriate norms for men of expressing sadness, the stigma is massive. It's like you're weak, you're broken, exactly how you describe it. So it's particularly hard for men to acknowledge that sadness has a benefit. And I'm going to separate because depression has its own term, which is really a psychological problem. So we're really talking about sadness. It's just the feeling of being sad. You're just kind of downcast. Um there is no quicker way to solicit help and cooperation and support from other people than having a sad facial expression. And we often don't know what it feels like of whether we actually look sad to other people. Um, if you look in the mirror, you can do this. I mean, method actors do this like the narrow all the time. Um, but we often don't know this. People will just say like, oh, you look kind of sad today. Now, the typical male response, including myself over my entire lifetime, is, no, I'm fine. And you try to snap yourself out of it. Now, why did someone ask you, it looks like you're a little bit sad today, because they're right now in that moment, they saw that expression and they want to do something for you. And so what I would say is your body, that emotion is not something to get rid of. That's an emotion to, we have to allow ourselves to recognize that part of being really psychologically strong, mentally strong is allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. Um, you can't, we can't do everything ourselves. And the reason that baseball teams and basketball teams and football teams are great metaphors is because you're leveraging the strengths of a number of different people together. And that's the only way that these teams make it through the rankings and end up in whatever the final championship games tend to be. It's not because of just Kobe Bryant. It's because of the supporting cast that does all these small little details that work with them. One person can't get the game. And it goes with that way in everything in life, in parenting. I mean, if, you, if you're unwilling to accept support because you're not feeling yourself, you're a little bit out of your body for some reason, well, it's good. you're going to yell more at your kids. You're going to be less patient. You're going to be less compassionate. You're not going to have as much fun with them. And these will lead to the memories of what childhood was like for them. And a lot of us, you know, when we had tough dads, you go back a generation, um, they weren't soft with us. And so we have this, we have these ideas that part of being a man is never showing that you're fearful, never showing that you're sad and never showing that you feel guilty. And that's a problematic idea because we can't live up to that because all of these emotions have a use, you know, guilt, guilt is this really beautiful emotion. It feels bad, but it's a reminder that I need to, it's a motivate, it's a motivator. It's telling us we should do something else to something to repair a relationship because we did something that pissed somebody off or upset somebody. And that's a good emotion. And prisoners that feel guilty when they're in prison are less likely to go to the revolving door and engage in another crime and end up back in the system again. What about anger? I mean, that's something else uh, that's often directed towards men that like you, you got to get a control of your anger and you can't be angry. Um, but there are some benefits to, to anger. What, what are those? Oh, anger is, and it, so doing, 
it's been two years of interviewing people for this book, writing this book, and now I've been you know running around talking about it. No emotion do people have more problems with than anger. And this has been a real big surprise to me. I thought it was going to be sadness or fear. And part of the for anger is what you just described, which is this idea that we have to keep these Neanderthal attitudes, these frat-like 20-something angry impulses to ourselves. You know, we're not allowed to be angry now that we're adults. We're supposed to be mature enough that we can handle all difficult situations. Well, anger is the emotion that appears when we feel as if the goals that we care about are being obstructed by somebody else or something else. It's that our, our moral code has been demolished by somebody. And so we feel angry. You know, it ends up being if you're with your family and you're having dinner at a restaurant and someone smokes a cigarette and blows it right over your table, you experience anger. If someone, if you're waiting patiently in a parking lot for a parking spot and someone grabs it right before you, even though you've been sitting there for two minutes, you get angry. Now, this is, a, this is not an emotion to hide. This is an emotion of, of it's, it's telling you something important. And then the question you ask, which is so important, which is how do you effectively display this in a healthy way to get the best possible outcome? So just a, a couple of things. One is, um, and we talk about this in the book, which is the idea of having a caveat before you express your anger. So think about it at work. Think about if your boss pissed you off, there's a power imbalance. So it's so what a lot of people say is it's easy to be, for you to say anger is good because you have tenure and you can't get fired from a university unless you, you know, have sex with 17 students. Um, but for in, in any workplace, if you feel that your boss is being disrespectful to you, if you feel as if someone's harassing you, um, there's a way to communicate this. When you, when, you, when you schedule an appointment to meet with your boss, you don't start off by right away screaming and saying that you feel disrespected and, and especially, particularly because they did in front of other people. You tell them, listen, I'm really uncomfortable about something I want to tell you, but it's important to me because um, I can't give you the best possible work I can unless we have this conversation. Now, what that does is when said softly, is it brings his, his or her defenses down a little bit so that he, he or she is ready to listen to you. With that, and it's probably true. You're probably going to be uncomfortable having the conversation, so why not just admit it? Once you have that caveat out of the way, there's a couple things. One is your anger, your expression has to be proportional to the problem that you're dealing with. So if your boss was just trying to be funny and ended up talking about making talking some smack about you in front of a bunch of people, well, you can't grab a lead pipe and smash everything off his table. That's, that's not proportional to the problem. You can raise your voice, but it's not worth – profanity probably is even too extreme for that situation. Um, they'll see it in your face, um, and by you sitting up in your chair and you looking them right in the eye and saying that, listen, the way that you spoke about me in front of that room full of people was completely disrespectful to me. And I saw you laughing, which made me even more upset, and what made me particularly, particularly perturbed about this, which is why I felt so compelled to talk to you, is – you didn't do it one-on-one -on -one with me. You expressed some of the problems you had in front of a room full of people. Now, what you're inducing is you're being very clear that they're not the, – the anger is about what they did, not who they are. And that's really important for expressing anger effectively. I'm not going to say, listen, you're an asshole. You're a bad manager. Um, 
you are a hypocrite with the values that you say you have, anything in that nature, everything that you say is not going to be heard. But when I talk about the exact behavior and the specifics of you chose to say that in front of a room full of people, they can listen to that, and that's something they can actually acknowledge and apologize. Um, the other part of anger to make it effective is you need to be clear and be able to look at somebody and stand your ground throughout the expression of what was bothering you. A lot of people express their anger, what bothered them in the beginning, and then they kind of shy off and get, their voice gets a little bit softer in pitch and a little bit more quiet and timid. So it's as if you're not really fully standing up for yourself. Um, and then the final piece of expressing anger effectively is you have to allow the person to have an out, which is, I don't expect you to respond right now to what I just told you. Um, but when you're ready, if it's a day from now or two days from now, um, you can come back to me and, um, you know, just how to tell you how I'm feeling because they might be defensive and they might not give the response you want to. But I know for me, for, you know, I've got 40 people that work for me. A lot of times people tell me that they're pissed off about something I've done immediately. You know, I respond in kind of in a witty way, which is saying of somehow downplaying what they're saying. And then 24 hours later, I end up apologizing to them, saying they were absolutely right. I thought about it overnight. I couldn't sleep as well as I wanted to. Uh, I'm glad you were a servant. I'm glad you have a good enough relationship where you could speak your mind. I want to get the best from you. I want you to feel good working here. Um, so we need to have these conversations. It won't always go that way, but it's important to develop the pattern of standing up for yourself. That's some great advice there. Now, uh, we're at the Art of Manliness. We're big fans of Teddy Roosevelt. He's like the patron saint of the Art of Manliness. Um, so I was really <laughs> tickled that you had a whole chapter called The Teddy Effect uh, dedicated about Teddy Roosevelt and his sort of the dark side of his personality that made him successful. Uh, can you talk about what The Teddy Effect is? First of all, this, that, this is why I'm here. Anyone that has Teddy Roosevelt, I've got a bobblehead of Teddy Roosevelt that's on both of my desks at home and at work. That's awesome. So he is my man. So I'm with you guys. I'm not going to be a huge fan of your show now. Um, Teddy Roosevelt is what every president should be and should aspire to become. Unfortunately, in today's world, there's no way you could have that with Teddy Roosevelt with the blogosphere and people having smartphones everywhere. I mean, here's a guy who would swim naked in the Potomac River right behind the White House in the middle of the night, here's a guy who would leave in the middle of, while Senate, the Senate is in session, and just go hunting for bears in North Dakota because he didn't want to listen to what they had to say until they actually could solve something on their own. Um, you know, here's a guy who was in the middle of giving a speech. Uh, he had notes in his pocket and was shot, and the bullet, the bullet did not pass the notes in his pocket. He took the notes out, looked at the bullet, put it down, and kept on giving his speech. Um, Teddy Roosevelt had a lot of the characteristics that are similar to what we would call psychopaths, which is, you know, Dexter, that HBO show, was a great example of a psychopath. Um, where this is, this, if he was in, fell into the wrong peer group, this is a guy who would have been an amazing serial killer. Um, the leader of the leader of a gang in inner city Chicago and an amazing drug dealer. And he happened to just have his leadership skills. He found a place in politics before, before he was in government, he was actually, uh, you know, with the police in, in, in New York city. Um, and he actually, and this is a guy who has, he's a selfish guy. Um, 
he recognized that he wanted his legacy, he wanted his legacy to be as amazing as he was willing to put himself ahead of a lot of people over the course of his career. He had a strong inner circle all the time that was considered part of his part of him. So he protected them as just as much as he did. So his loyalty was huge. This was a guy who was narcissistic. Now, when we talk about narcissism, um, most people don't realize that there's, there's a healthy side of narcissism and an unhealthy side. And Teddy had a real good batch of a healthy side of narcissism. And so if you, if you, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll explain these two sides to your sure, viewers. Sure. Great. So I think of, there's one, so the unhealthy side, another, an example of the unhealthy side would be um, Meta World Peace for the Lakers, mm-hmm. which this we can call narcissistic rivalry. And narcissistic rivalry is when, it's almost as if you're holding a sign that says, I will never let any of my rivals get what they deserve. I want everything to come to me. So your, your focus, your obsession is, I have these amazing strengths. I'm an amazing person. Um, and I'm going to make sure that nobody holds me down. And you're, you're obsessed about where your rivals are, where your ranking is. And so all of your time and effort is not focused on achievement. It's not focused on doing great things. It's focused on being better than the other people that you're competing with. And taken to its extreme of a sense of entitlement, a feeling that you're better than everybody else, and then focusing on um, passively, aggressively, Blocking your rivals from getting the ball, um, preventing your preventing your colleagues from getting from being acknowledged that they were part of the reason that this that this transaction was successful. It's just a bad thing for organizations. It's a bad thing for athletic teams. It's a bad thing to find in a relationship. And Metaworld Peace is a really good example of this. This guy had a ton of domestic abuse problems. Didn't get along with the other LA Lakers on his basketball team. Um, changed his name because he wanted the spotlight on him, and he would not pass the ball to certain people on the team if he if they thought that if they spoke badly about him in the media, which you just gotta you just don't do as a colleague. You can dislike someone, but when it comes to tournament time or game time, um, you got to put that aside. Now, on the flip side, on the, the healthy side, of narcissism, we can call it narcissistic admiration. Kobe Bryant is the perfect example of this. It's as if you're holding a sign that says, I have amazing strengths that people still don't appreciate. Kobe Bryant, if you talk to any player in the NBA, they will say he's the most, one of the most annoying people in the league, and yet he's incredible, so he deserves it. So, yes, he's narcissistic. Yes, he thinks he's amazing. Yes, before games actually start with the L.A. Lakers, same team as Meta World Peace. All the players practice on one side of the court when they're just shooting around, and Kobe feels he needs to be by himself to get in the Zen zone, and he's on the other side shooting by himself. The team understands this. They've accepted this. There's a sense of entitlement there. There's narcissism there. Um, the guy speaks five languages. The guy's one of the best players in the NBA in terms of his ball handling skills. Um, he screams at other players, but he does it because he wa- he believes he's – capable of doing amazing things and he's pushing everyone including himself to be the best possible person michael jordan was the same way um you know he's famous for punching steve care in the face during practice because um his dribbling was not up to par in practice no cameras nobody was there he punched steve care right in the face and in that moment um 
he gained the most respect from Michael Jordan, and they became best friends on their team. Even even him and and Scottie Pippen, Steve Kerr and and, and Michael Jordan were closer than than him and Pippen, um, because he recognized this guy wanted to be the best possible, and a punch was not about to inter that relationship and that punch was not going to interfere with him wanting to be the best. And so it was the, the recognition: I'm amazing. I have gifts. And they tend to be charismatic. They tend to attract other people. People want to emulate them. They love this, and it just makes them work harder. And Teddy Roosevelt emulated narcissistic admiration. This was a guy who thought he was the best president that was ever put into power. And he did it. He felt that way. But because of that, he felt the necessity to live up to that expectation that he had for himself and for his legacy. And he worked hard, as hard or harder than any other president that is out there. Yeah. He, he's the only person who, uh, he petitioned for the medal of honor. Like he, he thought he deserved the medal of honor after, um, the, the, the uh, chart with the rough riders, right. Up charge. Yeah, up Hill. War. yeah. And he got back and <laughs> he was hoping for a medal of honor nomination and no one got, and he actually petitioned for it, which is sort of like a faux pas. You're not supposed to like, ask for the medal Absolutely. of honor. So I guess there's an example of his narcissism. He finally got it, but it was like after he was dead. Um, but yeah, I guess that's another example of his narcissism. No, and, 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 and to keep with that in terms of medals, I mean, this is the only, only guy ever who had the medal of honor and the Nobel Peace Prize. So one a medal is for war and one medal is for diplomatic negotiations. You talked about social agility. You want to fight and you want to go to war? Boom, Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy I'm your guy. Um, it ends up being that we need to figure out how to how to figure out our differences and come to tolerate each other. Boom! You want peace? Teddy Roosevelt's your guy, and that's as opposed to you. You look at how people are spoken about now in politics. You're either a hawk or you're not, and really, what you want is agility. And I think that's what all of us want. I know that I want that for friends, for my friendships. I want that for my colleagues, and what that and that also entails that they're going to piss me off sometimes. But I want the best of the best, and the best people is can bring every dimension of their personality to the plate when it's beneficial and necessary and not prematurely discard it because it's not appropriate to be narcissistic. It's not appropriate to be Machiavellian and selfish. The best people appreciate every single side of their personality and bring it to bear. Do you have any advice for uh, folks who maybe aren't naturally Machiavellian or narcissistic or psychopathic uh because yeah this research says shows that uh, these types of people with these sort of like the dark triad often uh do well in leadership position they often advance faster um so i mean what do you tell for the guy who's just like not, his temperament is just to be sort of humble and not uh not rock the boat i mean what can they do to embrace the teddy effect no it's a great question i mean I Actually, as a mentor at working in a university, I give this kind of feedback all the time that for people that are kind, I say, this is your virtue. You're kind, you're generous, you're compassionate. But there's a tipping point where it can actually interfere with everything that we do in our work. And a perfect example of this is if you're in my group to work on a project, I need you to disagree with me sometimes. I need you to take the devil's advocate position, even if you don't believe it, because I need to think of, we need to think of what regulations, what, what are our competitors doing? What about the market have we not thought about as we get super excited about this product that we're interested in or this project that we're interested in? I need, I, I, so I train people in our culture 
that I seek dissonance. When you disagree with me, you'll gain more more equity in my mind than if you agree with me. I'm not looking for people to agree with me. Um, the advice that I give to people is essentially is don't think – the goal is not to be a narcissist and the goal is not to be a psychopath. The goal is to think about – we can learn from these people like Teddy Roosevelt and Kobe Bryant and Michael, and Michael Jordan uh, who have these qualities and say there are behaviors that they engage in that we just want to add every once in a while. And so if you're in a group setting and everybody's agreeing about an issue – you can actually gain great amount of leverage by trying to really intentionally, what are people not thinking about, or even raising the question. Um, I realize everybody's excited, and I don't want to be a buzzkill, but I'm wondering if we should, I think we need to have a conversation about what have we not considered because we're falling in love with their ideas too much. If that kind of statement gets static or a negative response, that's even that's even a, a greater kind of you know a smoke alarm alert that there's a problem with the group. Right? This is what happened to Cuban Missile Crisis, which is nobody would disagree with JFK. Nobody, everybody was so in love with him and so in love with their ideas that nobody said, "Listen, let's take 15 minutes and talk about what are we getting wrong." Because there's always something you're not considering there. So that's one thing that I, it's it's in a group setting. That's something that I suggest. The other one, and I strongly suggest this for, you know, the dads, moms, parents um, who are listening, is you need to start being selfish. If you worry about whether or not your your parents and your kids are right, your kids are going to be fine because you're thinking about it. You you reflect on this. You're good to go. What I suggest is if you don't recharge your own batteries, if you don't spend time with your friends, if you don't work on your body, if you don't spend time reading books that you like to read and take some time away from parenting, you're going to be a worse parent. You're going to be more impatient. You're going to be resentful. You're going to get upset at them more easily. Um, you're going to actually be less engaged in checking your smartphone more often. And so take time, build in time just for yourself and be selfish. And it's, it's the diametrical opposite of what people speak of. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It means you're going to be a better parent. The parent that doesn't take care of themselves is by definition an inferior parent because you're a bad role model for your kids of how they should live their lives when they're no longer under your wing. So that's the parenting piece of it. Um, and for the relationship part of it is you need to know what your values are. You should if you don't know the answer to what are the values that you're not willing to move on that are fundamental to your decisions, you just you need to spend some time and reflect on this. Like I know for myself, the idea of putting my own personal signature on my work and not being um, replicating what other people do is a fundamental value that I have. And one of my fundamental values is um, making sure that kind of ancient Greek style take care of mind and body, and that's the way I'm going to every single day of my life. I'm going to spend at least one hour on my mind by reading books that aren't related to my career and one hour on my body. And I make that almost like, like a, like a monk in a Tibetan monastery. That is, I don't, the day is not finished until I spend time. That's a value system that I abide by. You need to know what you value or else you're running around aimlessly. And the reason you need to know this is because when your values are compromised, that's when it's time to deviate from kindness. It's time to um, be willing to be angry, be willing to disagree with people. And so part of 
you know, I suggest people clarify their values and be willing to step into a discomfort zone when someone does something that goes against what you value. Gotcha. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Before we uh, end it, where can people find out more about your work? I'm used to, I have a weird last name, so if you just put Todd Kashdan in Google, K-A-S-H-D-A-N, you'll find my website. And I give away a, a ton of articles are available for free off of my website at, at toddkashdan.com. Fantastic. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been great being here. And any, anyone that loves Teddy is automatically a fan of mine. Awesome. Our guest today was Todd Cashin. He's one of the co-writers and authors on the book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, and you can find it on Amazon.com. Go out and get it. Really interesting read. You can also find out more information about his work at ToddCashton.com. That's T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H-D-A-N.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at theartofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on Stitcher or iTunes, whatever it is you use to listen. I don't care what it is. Just provide some feedback. I'd really appreciate it. And, you know, tell your friends about it. That'd be the best compliment you can give me is uh, recommending the podcast to a friend. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.